And um, thank you all for being here. And please welcome the incomparable Rudy Rucker. Thank you. It's, it's very nice to be here. This is my, my favorite bookstore to read in. Uh, I've been reading here for a long time. And uh, today I'm going to be reading from my autobiography. It's called Nested Scrolls. And uh, or maybe I'll just screw around with my computer instead of reading. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to tape it. We'll see how it works out. Um, the, uh, so this book is, uh, a few years ago, I, I, had, uh, I had to go to the hospital. I had a cerebral hemorrhage. And I could have died. And then when I got came out of it. I was sort of out of it for a week or two. And then I thought, well, if you're going to write your autobiography, you should, you should do it now. It's, you know, don't keep putting it off. And so I, I had fun doing this, sort of just piecing together stories that I would tell people if I were just talking to them. And I was also trying to get, mainly I've been a novelist for most of my life, and I wanted to get sort of a, with a novel, you often talk about a story arc. There's sort of, you know, some sort of thing happens, it goes from one end to the other. And I was trying to think of uh, what, what was the story arc of my own life. So, um, I'll read you some excerpts from here, and then we can have Q&A. Uh, let's start with the, the part, if you're going to write an autobiography, there's usually a page where you claim you remember being born. So here's that part. <laughs> My life began peacefully in the spring of 1946 amid an oceanic sense of floating. My visual field was a network of dusky veins, beige, mauve, umber. I lived amid the rhythms of my mother's heart, the ebb and flow of her breathing, sometimes agitated, sometimes calm. I liked it when the contractions started, molding me, pushing me down through the birth tunnel. The pressure set off sheets of light behind my eyes. And then I was out on my own. Instead of mom's heartbeat, I heard planks and rumbles. I was dying for oxygen. I stretched up my arms and took my first gasping breath. On the exhale, I found my voice. I cried without pause, relishing the fitful vibrations in my throat. And so I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, early on Friday, March 22nd, 1946, the day after the spring equinox, that singular cusp of the zodiac where the world snake bites its tail, the paradoxical wraparound where death becomes life. Can I really remember my birth? Well, I can vividly imagine it, especially if I'm around babies, especially if I'm around babies and small children. I find it wonderful to be around kids. In some ways, I like them more than adults. It's great to empathize with them and see through their clear eyes I recover a sense of how it feels to be that size. And life feels so much less harsh when I see the new shoots growing into the spaces left by the fallen old giants, the great wheel of life. One day in September 2008, Sylvia and I were visiting our son, Rudy Jr., and his wife, and their one-year-old twin daughters, Jasper and Zimri. One of the little girls was not toddling out the front door to the porch laboring to make it across the bump of the threshold. She'd only just learned to walk. Watching her, I was cheering her on, and she got this proud, happy, shy look on her face for all the world like a great lady entering a ballroom and being announced. Welcome, babies. And okay, now I'm gonna jump 
ahead quite a few years to when uh, I did this scam on Wired Magazine. This is kind of a funny story. Uh, okay. Right before the millennium, perhaps thanks to my own imp of the perverse, I wrote one of the oddest books of all, Saucer Wisdom. I wanted to do something special for the millennium. The book evolved in a strange way. In 1997, Wired Magazine had desired to start a line of books. I'd done a couple of journalistic pieces for Wired over the years. For one article, I went into the Intel chip fabrication plant. For another, I went to the secret storeroom at Skywalker Ranch where they have Yoda, R2-D2, and the Lost Ark. And in 1997, one of my old friends, Mark Frauenfelder, had become a new editor at Wired. Mark was a fan of my writing and a thoroughly likable guy. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, I'd written some ephemeral pieces for Mark's print zine, Boing Boing, which would, in 2000, evolve into the most popular blog in the world. Mark suggested that I write a work of speculative futurology to be a Wired book. I sent him some ideas that he liked, but then his fellow editors wondered if I could find a thread to tie my disparate predictions together. I proposed that I frame the book as if I'd learned my facts about the future from a man who'd actually been there. My time traveler was to be Frank Shook, a crackpot UFO abductee who'd been given a tour of the next 3,000 years by the aliens. My old pal Gregory Gibson was visiting me at the time, and I took him along to the pitch meeting with the Wired editors in February 1997. On the drive from San Jose to San Francisco, Greg and I cooked up the scheme that he would present himself as actually being Frank Shook, the saucer nut. Greg has a piercing glare and was then wearing a full beard with his hair very long. He looked like a homeless Viet vet. At the pitch meeting with the four editors present, Greg made a few tense, distracted remarks and then stalked out, muttering that it was too painful to be talking about his experiences with so many of us at once. There was a stunned silence. After a bit, I let on that Greg had been hoaxing them, but the editors didn't quite want to let go of the illusion. It was decided they'd present the book as a factual, true-life adventure starring the characters Rudy Rucker and Frank Shook. And they'd market it as if it were a book akin to Whitley Straber's UFO abduction book, Communion. I was a little worried about what this might do to whatever slight credibility my name has, but I was willing to grit my teeth and go through with it not only in hopes of sales, but also a way of thumbing my nose at conventional notions of respectability. Edgar Allan Poe, the hoaxer, would have done no less. The guys at Wired were fond of me and relatively new to book publishing. My agent Susan Prodder hit them up for an advance about five times as large as I was usually getting. They didn't realize how cheaply I could be had. Or maybe they did, but they wanted to do me a favor. I had a bit of trouble writing the book. The big advance made me nervous. I felt like I had to come up with something unusually good. And as I got deeper into the project, I started being paranoid that the aliens, if they existed, were going to show up to harass me. In April 1997, for instance, I went on a road trip with Sylvia and Georgia. We hit Las Vegas, the Grand Canyon, and Zion National Park in Utah. At Zion, I had a very frightening dream. In my dream, the aliens are high over me, 
in a long-legged Dr. Zeus-style walking machine that's also a bulldozer and it's rocking. The way machines do when they're trying to push something. I protest and the aliens shine a laser down into my mouth. The laser is etching my teeth as if they are computer chips in a fabrication plant. It's incredibly painful and it's happening way too fast. I woke myself up and felt that dark, helpless paranoia of the real UFO nuts. You think the aliens have already taken over the world and that we're just their cattle, their lab rats, controlled by our etched-in implants. I felt doomed. The next morning, the newspapers were filled with news of a mass UFO cult suicide in Los Angeles. And when we got home, we found our house flooded with 500 gallons of raw sewage. <laughs> The main line had clogged up while we were gone and the neighbor's crap had backed up through our toilet. Was this the revenge of the aliens? Was the sewage the objective correlative of ufology? Walking the hills above Los Gatos a few weeks later, I lay down in a grassy little meadow and looked up. I was wondering how it would be to see a classic flying, classic flying saucer up there drawn in lines of pale light against the blue sky. The noises in the woods began to take on an alien cast, sticking together to form higher-order mental forms. To further roil my psyche, Greg kept leaving me crackpot voicemail messages in the persona of Frank Shook. And I was arguing with him about whether I was going to give him a percentage of my book advance. On our way into the Wired Pitch meeting, I would foolishly told him that I'd cut him in, but once I had the deal, I didn't feel like paying him after all. <laughs> and then I did give Greg some money, but I grew so resentful about it that for the sake of our friendship, he agreed to give the money back. <laughs> it was a mess. I was going nuts. Transrealism was the only way out. I put all my fears and misgivings into the book. I even wrote a scene where my character, Frank Shook, robs the home of my character, Rudy Rucker. Frank steals Rudy's book manuscript and his computer. In search of a big third act for the novel, I flew to Spearfish, North Dakota in June 1997 to meet up with an artist friend of mine who lives there. His name is Dick Termes, and he paints primarily on spheres. He says that right after Christmas is the best time for gathering canvases to paint on. He picks up long-scale ball ornaments on sale at Kmart, covers them in gesso, and paints marvelous scenes using his own method of six-point perspective. What six-point perspective? Well, you can look it up. Termes has a video explaining it on the web. When I visited, Termes lent me his car, and I drove across the state line into Wyoming to visit the Devil's Tower, which appears in the classic UFO film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The tower was even more alien and inspiring than I'd imagined it would be. My characters Rudy Rucker and Frank Shook had their final meeting there, and Rudy took a ride in an alien-filled saucer. I ran this long, strange trip to the end and mailed the final manuscript to Wired in the summer of 1997, whereupon they told me that they'd canceled their whole line of books. <laughs> Susan Prodder, my agent, went after them with a vengeance and made them pay most of that fat advance they'd promised. Like I always say, it's times like that when you really need an agent. And then Susan sold the book again to Tor Books for a more modest sum. <coughs> I was happy to be selling a book to Tor, they're the largest publisher of fantasy and science fiction in the world, and I'd be working with the editor David Hartwell, who moved to Tor as well. 
As it turned out, I've continued selling books to Hartwell at Tor for some years to come. I'd made a bunch of drawings to go with Saucer Wisdom. Supposedly, Frank Shook himself had drawn these figures during his saucer trips. There was some question as to whether we'd need to have them redrawn by a professional artist. Wired had actually been planning to pay my friend Paul Mavridis to redraw them, but David Hartwell at Tor made the call that we would just use my drawings as is. As he put it, if they're supposed to be drawn by a UFO nut while he's in a flying saucer, how polished do they have to be? <laughs> to my relief, Tor didn't have the stomach for mounting a campaign to promote saucer wisdom as being literally true. Instead, we marketed Saucer Wisdom as a playful and visionary science book about our possible futures, which to some extent the book is. Possibly it might have worked better to describe the book as a trans-real science fiction novel, which is a more accurate description of its nature. Like Vladimir Nabokov's novel, Pale Fire, which initially appears to be a long poem accompanied by extensive footnotes, Saucer Wisdom is deceptive. It doesn't look like a novel, but a novel is what it actually is. This book didn't sell particularly well. Saucer true believers were offended by my irreverent novelistic tone, while science buffs were put off by the presence of any UFOs at all. Some people didn't seem able to figure out which parts of my book were serious and which parts were funny. That's a common problem. <laughs> all right, let me read another little bit. Um, This is something sort of interesting. Uh, I wrote a novel, Mathematicians in Love, from 2004 to 2005, <coughs> and um, it has multiple sheets of reality. And in order to give this some coherence, I used the notion that there might be a godlike being who keeps designing fresh drafts of our universe, like a novelist would do. So rather than saying that every possible universe exists, we have this God that writes a new version of our universe every week. Looks at the whole sheet, the past and the future, and says, all right, that's pretty good. I'll do a better draft now, every Friday. Okay. So my specific image of the world-building divinity in Mathematicians in Love was based upon a memorable day when my brother Embry and I visited Jellyfish Lake on an atoll near Palau in the South Pacific during an epic dive trip that we took in 2005. The unique species of golden jellyfish in this lake barely sting. They don't eat anything, and they get their nourishment from algae cultures that live inside their bodies. All they do all day is pulse their belts so as to move themselves into the sunniest part of the lake to make the algae in their tissues grow. Our guide said that visiting ctenophorologists that's somebody who studies jellyfish. That's a cool word. C-T-E-N-O. Ctenophorologists studying this lake's population had estimated it to be 15 million. We swam 100 yards out into the wide lake wearing masks, snorkels, and fins. The jellyfish were of every size. Each of them was pulsing with a repetitive beat, the little ones pulsing faster than the big ones. They seemed to have no inkling of up or down Although once they pulsed down to about 20 feet or so, they vaguely noticed the darkness and bumbled back towards the surface. It was like space travel to sink into the water staring at them. 
I saw nothing but the greenish yellow sunlit water and the endlessly many jellyfish. A couple of times I dove down to 20 feet, then floated up with the jellies all around me. If I relaxed, I could share a sense of there being no special location or direction. In the more densely packed regions, there might have been 60 of the jellyfish touching my body at any one time. Maybe four big guys, eight small ones, 16 still smaller jellyfish, 32 tiny ones, like that. The jellyfish stung ever so slightly, and the longer I stayed in, the more I could feel the venom. Particularly when I was free diving down through them, I'd feel tingles on my lips. A couple of them even drifted inside my trunks and touched my private parts. I thought of a line from William Burroughs's novel, The Ticket That Exploded. Skin like that, very hot for three weeks, and then wearing the happy cloak. Years earlier, I'd used Burroughs's notion of a happy cloak in my novel Software, where the happy cloak takes the form of a jellyfish-like cape of intelligent plastic that sends probes into your spine when you throw it over your back. In Mathematicians in Love, the designer god of our universe is a very large jellyfish. He makes, she makes a new revision every Friday. Sometimes I get a little tired of being cast as a science fiction writer. In my mind, I see my novels as surreal postmodern literature. I just so happen to couch my works in the vernacular genre form of SF because the field's tropes appeal to me. The downside is that since my books have that SF label on them, many people don't realize that I'm writing literature. In academic philosophy, they use the phrase category mistake to refer to a situation where one tries to apply a property to something that cannot possibly have this property. The classic example of a category mistake is the question, is virtue triangular? Sometimes I feel like my whole career of writing literary SF is a category mistake, and I wonder if there might be a way to get my work relabeled. As Kurt Vonnegut famously put it in 1974, I've been a sore-headed occupant of a file drawer labeled science fiction, and I would like out, particularly since so many serious critics regularly mistake the drawer for a urinal. <laughs> Not too long after this, Vonnegut did make it out of the drawer. Although he never stopped writing SF, he got people to start viewing his works as literature. More recently, Jonathan Lethem is a strong example of a former SF writer who's managed the escape from the ghetto move. He's a high-lit writer now, but in some sense his books are still SF, or at least fantasy-tinged. In terms of crossover, others start out as literary writers and then begin adding SF elements to their novels. Margaret Atwood comes to mind. These kinds of books tend, however, to be called speculative or imaginative fiction rather than SF. When I gripe about my SF label to Sylvia, she laughs at me. Not science fiction? You're writing about robots and talking cuttlefish and flying saucers and trips into the fourth dimension. What do you expect people to call your books? <laughs> so be it. Okay, um, I'll read one more little bit and then we'll do some questions. So this is, this is right at the very end of the book. So it starts with another reminiscence. My brother and I did this huge trip to Micronesia. Uh, I think I was, I think I was about 60 when we went. I'll end with one last Micronesia story. While touring around that obscure South Pacific island of Pompeii in February 2005, 
Embry and I found our way to an enormous petroglyph rock, a rock with carvings on it. It was smooth to the touch, 100 feet long, resting in the jungle beside an open field with green interior mountains beyond the field and with heartbreakingly beautiful tree crowns waving against the pale blue sky. The petroglyph designs carved into the rock were quite old. We saw images of paddles or knives, of women's vaginas or of shields, some bow tie shapes, and the outline of a whole woman. To find this site, we'd asked at a house near it, and a beetle nut chewing guy offered to guide us. We were glad to have him along for a few bucks. Wiley. He banged one spot on the big rock, and it sounded a bit hollow, and he said, There is a door in the rock here, and the brothers went inside. What brothers? Two brothers came from far away. Wiley pointed towards the other side of the island, across the interior mountains. It was maybe 10 miles distant, as remote a spot as he knew. From Kiti, they made these carvings. A giant came, and the brothers hid inside the rock. See here? It's a picture of a lock and a key. I told Wiley that Embry and I were brothers. And then a little later, I told them that we were from Kiti, which got a good laugh out of him. It was fun to think of Embry and myself as archetypes, brothers from a legend. In a field nearby, Wiley showed us the woman rock, which had a crotch and a slit, quite graphic. He touched the slit for good luck, and so did my brother and I, all of us hoping to see our women soon. There are other boulders in the field, and Wiley said there were people as well. <clears throat> he said this field was his land, and the land was a storyboard which is a kind of wooden bas-relief that the Micronesians carved to preserve their legends. Wiley's rocky field was a storyboard. I loved that. He was living mythically and in depth, and that's how I'd like to think I've lived too. It's been deep and intense here inside this cosmic novel. Back in the first chapter, I mentioned that I wondered what my life has meant. But now I see that's not a question I'm in a position to analyze. I'm inside my story, not outside of it. <clears throat> I'm in the storyboard. What does a flower mean? A waterfall? This said, as a writer, I can think of my life structure, about the story arc, and I see a few obvious themes. I searched for ultimate reality, and I found contentment in creativity. I tried to scale the heights of science, and I found my calling in mathematics and in science fiction. I drank and smoked pot, and then I stopped. I was a loner, I found love, I became a family man. I was a rebel, and I became a helpful professor. And I never stopped seeing the world in my own special way. When I was a kid, I felt like an ugly duckling. I'm a once awkward outcast who grew into grace, thanks in large measure to my dear wife, Sylvia. Thanks for everything, world. It's been a wonderful trip. So that's it. So give me a couple of questions. Yeah, Paul? When's volume two coming When is volume two coming out? Well, this runs from when I was zero to 60. <laughs> I have the feeling that might not be very much interesting in volume two. I am actually, I'm doing something in a way similar to that. Uh, since I'm a writer, I tend to keep journals. 
you know, sporadically. I do it less now because I've started blogging. But when I didn't blog, I, I did more journaling, and those are electronic files. And I have, in fact, dug up the last 20 years' worth of those, and I'm sort of gluing them together into a huge document, which is about half a million words. And I'm not even going to send that to a publisher. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to publish it as an e-book, I think. Or possibly, you know, I, I, don't see, I don't see it being marketable, but I think it could be an e-book. Yeah, the exegesis. Well, they finally published. People are like drooling and longing for the exegesis, and now they published it. And it turns out, maybe it's hard to tell. At you always wonder, was Phil putting us on or not? Was Phil in really serious? Was he to some extent mind gaming us? It's not clear. But in well, maybe in 50 years it can be published. Sure. But uh, the, I'll do the ebook within a year or so. Okay, thanks. You're asking, it came out in a, Nestor Scrolls came out in a limited edition from PS Books in England. And they're sort of a specialty science fiction collector publisher. And then Tor Books, they're more of a, a mass market publisher, did it six months later. Originally, Tor, I thought Tor, it's sometimes hard, the signals aren't clear. I mean, my editor's in New York, David Hartwell. And I had the definite impression that he was not interested in publishing it. And then uh, I think for some I thought of sending it to PS. Uh, I don't remember exactly how I thought of doing that. I knew they did this type of book, I guess. And so I sent it to them. And then uh, they said, sure, we'll do it. And then my agent, Susan Prodder, she mentioned that to Hartwell. And then suddenly he was, okay, let me see it. Maybe I will do it. And then he read it, and he said, well, actually, I like this. This is good. And for them, the upside was since PS was going to typeset and design the book, they could basically just take, uh, just take the design. So if you look, this edition looks exactly the same as PS, but it's a little smaller, and the photos are a little bit different. So there's, there's no textual differences at all? There's no differences at all other than the photos are different, and the actual size of the page is, is different. Oh, okay. I always said I wanted to be a beatnik science fiction writer, and Jude is saying I'm too nice and polite to be a beat writer. Well, at times, I, I think I've written. I've written some pretty crass things at times, like in Freeware. There's a speech that Corey Rhizome delivers about conservatives that's pretty harsh. Yeah. Too. yeah. <laughs> particularly, particularly institutions or, or individuals that, that deserve poking. And, yeah. That's, that's well, there was a period when George Bush was in for eight years. I think I wrote three novels in a row where there was an insane, evil U.S. president. <laughs> I was hoping that might make a difference. You know. But uh, 
the thing about beat writing that appealed to me is that it's there's this thing I call transrealism, which is a way that I like to write science fiction, and I like it to to some extent include the story of my life, you know, the world around me, people I know, and that's very much in the beat style to be writing confessional novels about yourself. I mean, Kerouac's books they're about himself with the different names, and Burroughs as well, and, and of course Ginsburg. So I was thinking I could take that style, but then add on the element of science fiction, so very cool things can happen. And uh, and for me, the science fictional things, they they take on the aspect of sort of symbols of, of things about yourself, like telepathy is the dream of, of being able to talk to people and have them understand you, and uh, things of that nature. See, I was wondering, speaking of whether or not you're nice or mean. Did you find yourself encountering earlier, slightly spikier versions of yourself while you were trying to write this? Did they come up and have words with you? <laughs> okay, Paul is asking, did, did my more or less nice younger self kind of bother me? Well, I did. Uh, it's not so well known. I did write an earlier memoir when I was about, I think, 35, called uh, All the Visions. I think Jude, my, they used to have one or two copies here. They're kind of hard to find. And I think they're probably super collectible now, where people like will not relinquish them. Yeah, yeah. That's another one I may put out as an ebook. But uh, so there, the thing is, I used to. Well, that's when I was too much under the influence of the beat model. That if I write my autobiography, it should mainly be about getting drunk and high, you know, and about hating people and being a rebel, you know. And then now. At this point, really, that's not the main thing about my life, you know. The main thing has been science and writing and family. And, you know, those other things, they were fun, they were a pastime, but they're not really the core of what I've been about. So uh, I did try to put in a still a few political digs. I mean, certainly the Vietnam War, you know, I still don't think that was a good idea. <laughs> That's very controversial. Yeah. <laughs> it was back then. Yeah. It was back then. So tell us, tell us about the, uh, speaking of outspoken authors, tell us about the new outspoken authors book for PM Publishing, which is, um, which has previous essays, oh, sorry, previous stories, and then the, the non-fiction. Right. Um, yeah, as it happens, there's a Bay Area publisher, and they're sort of, and they're a very kind of politically oriented, you might almost say anarchist, uh, PM Press. And uh, they publish books by anarchists. And also Terry Bisson, he's very much a, a scene maker in San Francisco. He organizes this. He's also from Kentucky, like me. And he's editing this series. It's called Outspoken Authors. And they're these very thin little books, uh, mostly by science fiction writers and including a couple of somewhat political short stories, and also I have an essay in here about called Surfing the Gnarl. Uh, I like to talk, there's this chaos theory concept of gnarliness. It's between order and chaos. And then there's an interview that Terry Bisson did with me. So that's a, a nice little book. That's actually a picture of me in Jellyfish Lake. So if uh, you can pass that. A visual aid here. That was a... We were diving, there was a woman called Safia Chen, and she lives in Mil Milpitas, and she took my picture with her underwater camera. 
Okay. Are we done? Is that enough? Say what? Okay, a question from Connor. Do I still do mathematics? Um, well, not in the way that I used to. Uh, when I was younger in my life, I got my PhD in mathematics, and I, you know, I was hoping, like any young mathematician, that I could prove some, you know, really big theorem that would, you know, be a big deal. And then I found, well, it's like you're a very good chess player, and then the people in the room with you are grandmasters, and you know they're all like 14 years old, and they're professors at Stanford already. And whenever you see in the Book of Guinness World's Records somebody who's a professor at Stanford, you know, the youngest ever, they're always mathematicians. So, so it was. I said, all right, this this isn't going to work for me. So then, uh, then I kind of went sideways into computer science, and I did that for 20 years. And I still think mathematically, you know, I, I see shapes and patterns and things of that nature, but uh, it's not really a matter of trying to prove theorems anymore. The, the the computer science, in a way, replaced that because it's you can set down systems and see what evolves, what happens. It's, it's very, but it's more like empirical. It's like mathematics would be if it was empirical. And that, yes, I got, I, I got very interested in cellular automata. They're a, a beautiful kind of, it, it's really fun because you can, you can get these programs and you can watch and you can see what comes out. It's a very satisfying thing to do. But these days, I, I don't even do any computer programming. I just try to, uh, wait, I want to get my camera out and get a picture of you all. I was trying to do that. So I don't, I don't really do much programming. At this point, I'm just trying to write and paint. I took a painting, and I like that because it's analog. Give me a smile. Okay. You'll be on my blog. <laughs> get, make it a picture of the empty chair then. Jude, go sit in that chair. So do <laughs> don't have an empty chair. So we don't chair. have an empty chair in the Yeah, room. there we go. <laughs> All right, and then I'll put six copies of this. Yeah. Okay, thanks. And if my computer works, I will also put up a podcast of this. Okay, so maybe that's enough. So thanks for coming out. If you have anything else, you can just come up and ask me. Did you have a question? Yeah. One more question? Question comment. I, I came in on this kind of late, but I seem to remember I, I saw a copy of your book already, and, and it mentioned that you, you come from Kentucky. Is that That's true. What part? Are you from Kentucky? Yeah. <laughs> no, I guess, yeah. No, I'm sort of interested, you know, living, growing up there, living there, how, how that maybe, what your early science fiction exposure was. Okay, well, that's a good question. Thanks, Amy. Okay, we've got a question uh, from a fellow Kentuckian saying what was it like growing up in Kentucky and then coming to California. I grew up in Louisville. It actually was a suburb of Louisville, St. Matthews, near Harrods Creek. And uh, I lived there until I went to college when I was 18. And uh, the only science, well, there was two sources for science fiction. One was the Louisville Free Public Library. And they would have books like the best science fiction stories of 1949. <laughs> and I really liked those books. And then uh, the other source, there was a, a Woolworths 5 and 10. And that, this was the, the one of science fiction's golden ages. 
there'd be you know these little Valentine paperbacks that would cost about 25 cents. And those are good too. So and then I had a neighbor, my friend Niall Schoening. He was a a big science fiction fan, so we would share what we learned about the field. <laughs> and and then of course we they started having Twilight Zone, and I you know I, I really liked that show. And then Outer Limits was sometimes a little too scary for me. I'm sort of, I'm easily scared. I have trouble watching like Twin Peaks, you know. Like. <laughs> I guess you probably know that uh, Hunter S. Thompson's also from Louisville. Oh yeah, well there, I, once they interviewed me for the Louisville paper and the interviewer said, Rudy Rucker aspires to be the third in a local triumvirate of Muhammad Ali, Hunter S. Thompson, and Rudy Rucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really awesome quote. <laughs> <laughs> and I did set some of my novels there. My, the, I wrote a series called the Wear series. There's software, wetware, freeware, and realware. Yeah. yeah and the second one of those wetware is largely set in Louisville. And uh, I think there was another Louisville novel. Oh yeah, the uh, I think it's called The Secret of Life. Yeah, that was about growing up in Louisville. Oh yeah. My brother still lives there. I go back now and then, not as often as I'd like to. These are my granddaughters. You have to one more. Sure. So I don't know how many people that do both. Do you feel like there's any parallels between painting and computer programming? Well. I guess the one reason I like painting is because it's so much not like computer programming. <laughs> because it's, I mean, even writing has this thing where it's digital. You know, I'm pressing individual keys. I mean, there's a flow of language, but there's still this digital thing to it. And you've got these files, you know, and inevitably, hardly a day goes by when there's not some screw up on your computer, some, some moment of stress. And painting, it's just smooth, it's, you smear it around. You know, you put it on, and if something's wrong, you, you just smear on it, you rub it, you paint over it, and I like it a lot. It's a different part of my brain. One thing I do sometimes, it sometimes connects with my writing in that when I'm facing something I want to write and I can't quite pre-visualize it, if I just do a painting, and, you know, I won't even map out, do a sketch, I'll just sort of say I'm just going to start painting this and I'll see how it comes out. And that, that's sometimes very helpful to me. But not everything I paint has to do with my books, though. But I, I like it a lot. Uh, Paul Mavridi's here. He's one of the, the first artists that I got to hang around with. So he was sort of an inspiration to me. When I was working on, I think it was Freeware, I used to go to his studio. And we'd sit around and he'd paint and I'd read him what I was writing. And that felt nice. That felt like being French, you know. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. I think we're done. Thanks for coming. Thank you, G. Oh yeah, the free. The so you get the print. Yeah, and you can pick any print that you want. Yeah, we have some um, on easels up here at the counter, but there's.
So you're welcome to choose which print you like, whoever wins. <laughs> okay, so this is number 455. The last three digits are 455. Lita, yeah. all right. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Yeah.